So how, there's like, everyone's over here and this is all skippy over here. That's okay. We'll work with it. How are you guys doing tonight? Excellent. I know we've already prayed. Can we do it just one more time? All right. Heavenly Father, tonight we have already sung it. There's no other name but the name of Jesus. So we call upon that name tonight, and we don't do it casually. Lord Jesus, we call upon your name tonight with desperation because we are desperate for you to come, and we're desperate for you to transform the way that we think and the way that we are. We're desperate for you, Lord God, to move in our lives to cause us to love the things that you love and to hate the things that you hate. Holy Spirit, we ask tonight for revolution to take place in the way that we think about you. And it's not just enough that we change the way that we think. Father, we ask you to bring revelation and revolution to our actions so that we would not be just hearers of your word, but that we would become doers of your word. And Father, we ask this for the excellent and magnificent name of Jesus and for the furtherance of his gospel. So in Jesus' name, amen. In my lifetime, and I'm early 50s, so in my lifetime, I've seen a lot of changes take place in my culture. And I am not a great student of history. You can ask my husband anything after 300 AD, I'm totally not interested in. Everything before 300 AD, we can talk. But anything after 300 AD, in my brain, it's just a repeat of things that have already happened. So I I tend to, I tend to um, focus more on ancient history than on contemporary history. But I have to be aware because the scripture calls us to be circumspect. And circumspect, I can't get the word out tonight. Circumspect means to be completely aware of everything that's going on around you. And that means not just aware of things that are going on in the spirit, but aware of things that are going on in our world and how the events in the realm of the spirit should inform and impact the events of the world. And, and vice versa, even though the world does not influence the spirit, but the spirit should be influencing the things of the world. One of the things that I've noticed in my lifetime, I accepted Christ in 1980. I was 18 years old, and you can do the math, but I accepted Christ in 1980. It was at the end of what we would refer to as the charismatic movement. And the charismatic movement had its prime or its heyday, I think, in the 70s. It pretty much was initiated in the late 50s with the latter rain movement and then carried on over into the 60s and reached what I would consider to be its epic moment in the 70s. But prior to the latter rain and then the charismatic movement, there was a fatalistic attitude within the church of North America. And what I mean by that, because of World War I, the Korean War, World War II, I got those mixed up, World War I, World War II, then the Korean War, there seemed to be this attitude of we are just going to have to endure time to get to heaven. So everything was about how horrible life is. The sermons that were preached were about life is rough, life is tough, nothing good happens in life, so you're going to have to wait until you get to heaven. And everything good was projected to heaven. Now there is truth in that. 
But then along came the latter rain movement and the charismatic movement and introduced us to an idea that says the kingdom of God is right now. Now, I believe in kingdom now, but not all of it, okay? We get some of it now, but there's more than what we can experience in time. For instance, I believe that God is healer, but even if God heals you physically, you are still going to die because your forever healing doesn't come until you step out of time and into eternity. So thank God for healing in time, but ultimately thank God that there's coming a day when we step out of time and into eternity, and all that is old and decaying will be made new in Christ Jesus. So hallelujah for that. But what happened with that introduction to this kingdom now idea is that some people bought into that idea and said it's all right now. That if we will say the right words, confess the right scriptures, seal it all up with the name of Jesus, we don't ever have to go through any kind of suffering or pain. Now, some of you are laughing, but some of you know that's true. And if you were to go to church and you were sick and you said that you were sick, then instead of someone praying for healing, they would rebuke you for your confession. And that was equally as wrong as the fatalistic view. So between those two, what we have now in the year 2014, what we have now is an entire generation of Christians, evangelical Christians, that do not understand a biblical concept of suffering. So when we have to go through something, so that when things don't work out the way that we want them to, we do not know how to respond to that. A guy by the name of Ray Comfort, who is a very well-known, wonderfully anointed evangelist, he said it like this. If two people are getting on a plane... And at some point, that plane is going down. It's going to crash. It's inevitable. It is going to happen. There's no question about it. Once that plane gets up at the sky and reaches 30,000 feet, it's at some point, it's going to come crashing down. One guy is given a parachute and he's told, at some point, this plane is coming down. And the only thing that will save you is this parachute. That man's going to put that parachute on. He's going to hold it. He's going to take care of it. He's not going to let anyone take it away from him because that parachute is what's going to keep him from going splat if the plane crashes or when the plane crashes. The other guy is told, look at this beautiful parachute. It comes in four different colors, and we have one just for you. It's going to make your trip so much more comfortable, and as soon as you put this parachute on, you will feel happiness. And everything's going to work well for you. So put this parachute on and life's going to be just wonderful. So at about 30,000 feet, the plane begins to experience some turbulence prior to the crash. The guy who's been told that the plane is going to crash is clinging to his parachute because he doesn't know if this could possibly be the moment when this plane's coming out of the air. The other guy who's been told that the parachute was for his comfort and for his pleasure and to make him look good with everyone else and to fit in, the flight attendant spills coffee on him. And he gets furious, and he's certain that the reason that she spilled coffee on him is because of that stupid parachute. So in frustration, he takes the parachute off, throws it to the ground, and says, I want nothing to do with it. That's the way the two different trains of thought with regard to salvation you have one group accurately 
declaring and saying, at some point, Jesus is coming back. At some point, you're going to step out of time and into eternity, and the only thing that will separate you from hell is saving is a saving power of Jesus Christ and the decision that you make for him right now in this moment in time. That person is going to embrace salvation and no one's going to be able to pry it away from them. The other person is told, oh, accept Jesus. He'll make everything in your life wonderful. Follow Jesus and it'll just be fun and happiness and goosebumps and Holy Spirit parties one right after the other and nothing bad will ever happen to you and it'll all just be it's the joy of the Lord is my strength and there will never be any tribulation or any trouble and so that person embraces that ideal and the minute there's trouble what do they do this is not real and they toss it off to the side are you guys following me with this line of thought you're seeing the same thing that I do okay What I want to share with you tonight from the book of Philippians is Paul's presentation of how the Christian ought to approach suffering. And I I am just, again, I'm amazed at this little book. The Philippians, when I was reading Gordon Fee's commentary on this book, and Gordon Fee refers to Philippians as a friendship epistle. And so throughout his entire commentary, he keeps looking back and seeing the friendship element and focusing on the friendship element in the book of Philippians. And certainly, from the first message I spoke on with you guys a few weeks ago, I certainly agree with that. But that's not the only element. Many other New Testament commentators in their commentaries on the book of of Philippians, they refer to Philippians as the epistle of joy because 14 times in the book of Philippians alone, just this one little book with four chapters, 14 times the word joy or rejoice is used. But I present to you tonight that while certainly Paul focuses on joy and rejoicing in the Lord, this book is a letter of suffering. Listen to some of the words that Paul uses. He never really says suffering. I think suffering may be used once, possibly twice in the entire epistle. He uses words like imprisonment, my circumstances. When was the last time you referred to your suffering as circumstances? (laughs) His distress, how he's being hard-pressed, the conflict that's around him, how he's being poured out the struggle that he faces and his affliction. So when you look at those words, while the actual word suffering doesn't really show up that many times, when you look at Paul's descriptions throughout the book of Philippians, you find that he pretty profusely refers back to the idea that there are things happening to him that are not pleasant in the flesh. So two of the more popular memory verses from Philippians um, comes from chapter 4. And I just want to throw this out here for you. The first one is chapter 4, verse 13. I can do all things through, through him who strengthens me, and my God shall supply all of your needs according to his riches in, in Christ Jesus. Now, we seriously take those passages out of context when we quote them. And we like, to, we like to memorize just one little verse that sounds good to us. My God, he shall supply all of my needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. And most of us can quote that and then go off and sing that song, Jehovah Jireh, because we know it by heart. But Paul is a man in prison. 
He is a man that, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 4, he's gone hungry. He's been without a home. He's been without a place to even lay his head. This is a man that's been in some very difficult situations. When he talks about God supplying his needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus, Paul understands that a need is not a bigger house, is not a bigger car, is not a higher paying job, it's not some luxury or some new designer outfit. For Paul, the need is the strength and courage that he must have in order to keep preaching the gospel. The next time you say, Father, I ask you to supply for all of my needs according to your riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Just remember, a lot of things that we say are needs are nothing more than wants. And while God may occasionally grant us those wants, ultimately God is about meeting our needs. And as far as he is concerned, holiness in our lives is a need, not comfort. Our character is more necessary than our convenience. And God is going to see to it that our needs are met. And not needs by our definition, needs by his definition. Well, that, that's not so... That's not so fun now, is it? And then what about that other one where he says, I can do all things through him, through Christ Jesus, who strengthens me. We say that a lot of times when we, when we are thinking about, I want something bigger, better. I want something for myself. God, I know that you can supply this. I know that you can form this and you can make this and you can do this for me. But that's not what that's about. I can do all things. I can do all the things that God has ordered for my life. I can do all the things that God has said yes and amen to over my life. I can pray until my head falls off, but I will never be a ballerina. Seriously. I mean, there are times when maybe I'd like to be. It would be fun to stand on your tiptoes and be graceful <laughs> instead of being one of those people that stops instead of walks. That would be a lot of fun. But that's not what God's interested in. God is interested in making me like his son. And so when you read through the book of, of Philippians, even when you come across passages like the two that I've just given you, remember that Paul is speaking these passages. He's in prison. He could die at any moment. He is not comfortable. His basic needs are barely being met. And yet Paul has the strength to look beyond his circumstances and situation and see that the gospel of Jesus Christ is more important than anything that he's experiencing in that moment. Amen? Amen. So open your Bibles with me to Philippians chapter 3. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. Finally what? Finally, after all these things, finally after knowing that Epaphroditus almost died from sickness, finally after knowing that Paul's in prison, finally after knowing that there are enemies of the gospel and people who are trying to use Paul's imprisonment to say that he did something bad or that God's not with him, finally after all these things, he doesn't say finally worry yourself silly. He doesn't say, finally, go, go scheme among yourselves and consult with your own hearts trying to find a resolve for these things. He says, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. 
I love the book of Exodus. It may be, well, I can't say it may be one of my favorites. They're all my favorites. Depends on what day of the week it is. But the story of the Israelites coming out of Egypt and Pharaoh's army pursuing them and them coming to the Red Sea and they've got Pharaoh's army behind them and they've got the sea in front of them and they don't really know how to swim and they don't know what to do. They're going to drown in the water or they're going to be destroyed by Pharaoh's army. Doubt and unbelief says go back. But doubt and unbelief will always say go back, won't it? And Moses in faith says stand still. And God, with, with his perspective, says go through the water. And the sea parts and they walk across on dry ground. And then when they get on the other side and the water closes up and Pharaoh's army is drowned, then they sing the song of the Lord. Right song, wrong side, in the words of Leonard Ravenhill. It would have been much more powerful if they had sang the song before the sea ever parted. But that's what rejoicing is all about. Rejoicing is looking at your set of circumstances and situations and saying, these things will not define me. These things will not deceive me. I'm going to look up. And I'm going to see him. And because I look up, I can rejoice. I'm not rejoicing because things are falling apart. I'm not rejoicing because my kids aren't doing what they're supposed to do. I'm not rejoicing because my husband or my wife left me. I'm rejoicing because Jesus is Lord. And nothing in time can change that. I'm rejoicing because I know in whom I have believed. And I am persuaded that he is able to keep the things that I commit to him. That's why I can rejoice. Circumstances and situations are poor grounds for anything because they change quickly. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble for me and it's safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Verse 12, not that I had already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind 
and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal this to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. The first thing that Paul tells them is put no confidence in the flesh. If anyone had the right to put confidence in their flesh, it would have been Paul. Look at his pedigree. And I look at this, he uses um, financial language in portions of this. And so if you think about this like a stock market, this is his portfolio. He has, by, by every means and understanding, Paul has a portfolio that is sure to give him a substantial return on his investments. But how many of you know that no one can predict the stock market? You can make the safest investments in the world. You can make the craziest investments in the world. And you don't know what's going to happen because it really is a gamble. That's why any investor with ethics will say to you, do not invest what you cannot afford to lose. And that, that's, a, that's a very ethical statement because no one can promise you a guaranteed return on anything. So Paul says, here's my portfolio. Here's my position. I'm circumcised on the eighth day. He has followed the law since he was an infant. This tells us that both his mother and his father were Jewish. This tells us that they were observers of the law. This tells us that they were in good standing with the legal system of Judaism. This tells us that these guys had everything within their own Jewish community, circumcised on the eighth day of the nation of Israel. He wasn't just a God-fearer, someone from the outside who wanted to come inside and be a part of the worship of Israel's God. He was born there. We can say that this guy was born with a silver spoon in his mouth. He had everything, circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, a Hebrew of Hebrews. Any way you sliced him, he was going to bleed Jewish. And there was no question about that. The people of his day within the Jewish circles would have looked at Paul and recognized Paul as a man of distinction because of his birth and his ancestry. From the tribe of Benjamin, Paul was a man who was born with position. And then look at his achievement. We know from other writings that he was a student of the renowned philosopher Gamaliel. So he was a man who had studied philosophy under someone that was over the top up there with Aristotle and Plato and those guys. He was a great student of the law. It would be equivalent, his education would be equivalent of someone who graduated from Harvard or Oxford or some other well-known Ivy League institute. Paul had it all. And I'm sure that Paul probably made the best grades in his class. I just really, I can't see Paul bringing home a B. Just, it just somehow isn't within his nature. I think when, if you guys understand the personalities, choleric, sanguine, melancholy, and phlegmatic, Paul's a choleric. And, and I really connect with Paul because I'm pretty choleric myself. And, and cholerics are very goal-oriented, and we will compete against ourselves if there's no one else. So I just can't see Paul bringing home a bee and say, look what I did. Whatever he did, he was going to be at the top of his class. Um, so he was... He was um, he was a son of the law and a Pharisee. That means that he had um, 
been allowed into a sect of renowned Jews who were well-versed in the law and, and as well as the fence laws of Judaism, men who were looked up to as major leaders, um, probably looked up to almost as much as the priests of Israel. And he had, he had position, he had achievement, and he had power. And within his repertoire of power, he was a persecutor of Christians. Now, we would think, boy, that shouldn't be in his repertoire. That's nothing to brag about. But among the Jews, that was a good thing. And he's speaking to Jews or speaking to a non-Jewish community about Judaism. And he's saying, in my community, I was at the top. I was a persecutor of Christians. I did all kinds of things. I was righteousness. I was righteous and I was blameless according to the law. In other words, I kept the law. He was all these things. He had all these things in his portfolio. And these things would give him great returns within his Jewish culture. He was assured a very high place, a very high position, a well-paying position. He was assured great respect within his community. And what did Paul say about these things? I know people that work all of their lives to achieve degrees and positions. And Paul says, I count it all as trash. The idea is not, not the kind of trash that can be recycled or reclaimed, not some broken piece of furniture that somebody from Home and Garden Network can come by and pick up and turn into a work of art, not that kind of trash, trash that was unusable, common street trash, tra uh, trash that was nothing but refuse. One translation even says dung. I count all of this as the lowest form of trash you can imagine and, that's, and Paul's not just saying that. You know, somebody that doesn't have those things can say those things don't matter. But when someone who does have those things and they stand up and say, it's garbage. And I considered it garbage. Now, this is what has to happen. Paul didn't just say all of these things are garbage out of some vacuum. You don't throw something like that away unless you've seen something better unless you get a glimpse of something better. So Paul's not throwing these things away just because he doesn't want them anymore. He's throwing these things away because he sees something else he wants more. Do you remember the parable about the, the pearl of great price? A man finds a pearl and, and it's very precious pearl and it's one that he wants desperately. So what does he do? He goes and sells all that he has in order to purchase that pearl. That's what Paul is saying here. I have found something that's worth more to me than all of my degrees, than all of my positions, that's, that's worth more to me than all the acclamation that any human being can ever give to me. And so that in order for me to go after this, I have to let go of that. You guys know I teach in seminaries, and I'm around PhDs all the time. And there are some people that have earned their PhD and they love Jesus more than they love their degree. But I've also met people who love their degrees and love their title more than they love Jesus. And it comes out in everything that they do. They're territorial, they're mean, they're bitter, they're hateful, and you just do not want to be around them. And I wish they would get a, go and work in another field because it, it doesn't sit well with me that they call themselves Christians and teach in seminaries and train others to become ministers of the gospel. Because how can you train someone to be a minister of the gospel when you yourself are not? 
And that's when seminary becomes cemetery. And that, and that creates great problems. The man or the woman that can hold the degree but hold Jesus closer is precious and of great value. There are men and women who have titles, CEO, president, vice president, and they look to those titles and think more highly of their titles than they do their relationship with Jesus Christ. And if they had to choose between their title and their position and following the Lord, it would be too big of a battle for them. We know people like that. Our church is filled with them. And when I say church, I'm talking about church at large. That they won't function if they don't have a title. They won't do what God has called them to do unless they're recognized by everyone. I tell you, it's time for us to do like Paul and say, I count that stuff but rubbish because I've seen something that's more important to me than a title, than a, than a, than a stock market portfolio. I've seen something. What is it that Paul has seen? He says, I put no confidence in the flesh. His position, his achievement, his power, it's counted as nothing to Paul. He says, I have given all this up for the sake of Christ. Paul had the attitude that if it was personal gain for him and built his flesh up, then it was a loss to Christ. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Because this is not a new idea for Paul. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, beginning at verse 11. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst. This is the apostle Paul, this great man. To this present hour, we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless. And we labor working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. The reason Paul's doing these things He's given up everything, everything that matters to the world and counted it but loss. And now he's enduring this kind of hardship. And what does he say? Rejoice. And again, I say rejoice. He's doing this to gain Christ. He's doing this for the sake of Christ. He had found something more valuable than what he had relinquished. And what he had found was the goal or the desire to know Christ. Not just to know Christ casually. Oh, I know about Jesus. I know that he is the son of God. I know that he died for my sin. I know that he was raised on the third day and I know that he is coming back again. That's a casual knowledge about Christ. I'm talking about an intimate knowledge, knowing him. Knowing him so that you know his voice when he speaks and you'll not follow another. Knowing him that when he convicts you, you know that it's conviction and you're moved by it. Knowing that when he urges you to move forward, that you move forward. Knowing that when he says go, you are bought with a price and you are not your own, so therefore you go. And you bless him on the way. Knowing that what he says is truth, and that you seek to bring honor and glory to him above all else. Paul says, I count all these things as loss. I count them as nothing, as the lowest form of trash that I might know Jesus. 
And we have trouble turning the television off for one hour to pray and study scripture. We have trouble unplugging from the internet for a day to give that day to the Lord. We have trouble letting go of our anger and the things that people have done to us that we might hear from the Lord and connect to him. Church, I think we got a problem. Problem's not him. He's altogether lovely. The problem is that we don't know him. And for the most part, we're not really interested in having an intimate knowledge of him. Because I love my husband and I know my husband. And the way I know him is I have spent time with him. I know his voice. I know his mannerisms. I know the way he walks. I know the way he thinks. And I know pretty much what's going to come out of his mouth before he even says it. I know him. But I want to know Jesus even more than that. And the only way you get to know Jesus on that level is to spend time with him. And here's a big and. The way that I have gotten to know Jesus the most is by having to go through difficult moments. It is suffering that has brought about the greatest revelation to me about the person and nature of Jesus Christ. I have learned more about him when I didn't get what I wanted than I ever did by getting what I thought I wanted in that moment. I've learned more about his holiness when he refused to budge and capitulate to my whining and crying that only lasted for a moment. Do you guys know what I'm talking about? Okay, you guys are getting really quiet on me now. Just, just breathe. It's going to be all right. <laughs> it is through suffering. Now listen to me. And I'm, not, I'm, no, I'm in no way endorsing unrighteous injustices that are done to people. And I think that it is incumbent upon us as the people of Jesus Christ to stand for those who cannot stand for themselves and to cry out against social injustices, not only where we live, but across the world. We should be the loudest voice in this world with regard to injustices, especially to children and to people who have no ability to cry out for themselves. That's a part of us being like Jesus. But suffering will come to every human being. But for the Christian, suffering can and should have a bonus to it in that it's through our suffering that we get to know him. It's through our suffering that we get to know ourselves sometimes. I have often said this, when we go through difficult moments, those moments do not make us anything. They just reveal what we already were. And it's only through the difficulties, it's only through the traumas that we see those things that are uncomely in our lives forced to the surface for the Holy Spirit to convict us and then to deal with us about it. I don't think anyone in here should go home and go, oh God, let suffering come. No, no, no. There's no need for us to pray like that or to move in that direction. Suffering will come to all of us. But what should happen when those moments come and how we should react to it. Listen to the words of Paul. I've lost everything. 
and I count it as nothing that I might know him. Look at how Paul wants to know him. This is, this is just phenomenal. I don't want to know him casually. I don't want to know him and his ability to raise the dead, walk on water, multiply bread, and find coins out of fish's mouths. Not anything like that. And Paul definitely functioned and flowed in the supernatural. But this, has, this is how he wants to know Christ. He says, I want to know him in the power of his resurrection, in the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death. I must have read that passage a hundred times in the last couple of days. Look at the way Paul sets that up. The power of his resurrection, the fellowship of, of his sufferings, and being conformed to his death. That's the exact opposite setup of what you would expect. We are told that it's in baptism that we experience death and resurrection, that it's in baptism that we begin to understand that it's Christ conforming us to his own image. And then after baptism, we go through suffering. And after we've suffered, then we can know the power of God. But Paul has completely turned this around. And instead of starting with being conformed to his death, he starts with the power of his resurrection. He does it the exact opposite of the way things happen. Have you ever looked at that and wondered why? That's okay. I didn't either until I, I just saw it a couple of days ago. <laughs> this is the thought that occurred to me. We are not capable of knowing the fellowship of his sufferings if we are not empowered with a spirit. Because without the empowering presence of God's spirit, the suffering will overcome us and destroy us. That takes me back to the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came and Jesus said, I want you to tarry in the upper room until you be empowered from on high, until you be clothed with dunamis power. And then you're going to go out and you're going to be witnesses unto me to Jerusalem, Judea, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. And we know that being a witness for Jesus meant that at some point somebody was going to not like what you had to say and they were going to either put you in prison, stone you, kill you, or leave you abandoned on an island called Patmos. But being filled with the Spirit wasn't all about gifts. It was about gifts, and I don't want to negate that. But being filled with the Spirit was also about surrendering to a life of suffering. To where when you preach the gospel, people are not going to like you. When you preach the gospel, people are going to not understand why you're saying that. People are going to accuse you of being prejudiced and mean and intolerant. When you preach the gospel, people are going to tell you that you are not politically correct and even accuse you of terrorism and terroristic thinking and actions. When you preach the gospel, because the gospel of Jesus Christ is radical. It's about having no king but Jesus. It's about having no source but Jesus. It's about being willing to live or to die at his command. It's about taking up your cross and following him. You see, the great thing about the man or the woman that is sold out to Jesus Christ is that nobody else can buy them. And government, listen to me, government and other institutions almost completely depend on people being bought. Bought by comforts, bought by convenience, bought by welfare, and you go on with the list. But the government is completely, governmental institutions are completely dependent on people that will be bought 
and owned by the system. So when someone says, won't be bought, won't be owned by any system, but the kingdom of God, you become a threat to every other system. Isn't that amazing? I mean, do you see that happening in our world? Look at Iraq and the things going on there. Look at Afghanistan. Look anywhere. Look next door. It's happening everywhere. There is an ongoing fight between the kingdom of God and the kingdoms of this world. And God wants you stock, lock, and barrel. God wants you, like Paul, to say, all these things I count as nothing that I might know him in the power of his resurrection, understanding that that dunamis power, that that resurrection power is not just about gifts, but it's about being empowered to stand up and speak the truth of the gospel even when it's going to cost you. The power that will allow you to endure hardships like a good soldier. Now, this is very contrary to much of the teaching that we hear going on throughout our Western continent right now. But this is the truth. If you are going to follow Jesus, there will be obstacles. There will be conflict. There will be persecution. And I believe that those things will increase as the day draws closer for the return of the Lord. I don't see these things getting easier. I see things becoming more difficult. And church, we're going to have to grow up and realize that nothing is as important as knowing him in the power of his resurrection. So the power of the resurrection, God's empowering presence to enable us to know him in the fellowship of his sufferings. When we suffer for the sake of the gospel, it works in us according to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Paul calls it a light affliction. That still just always amazes me. Shipwrecked, stoned, left for dead, thrown in prison, rejected, going hungry, having to work to preach the gospel, giving up everything. And he calls it a light affliction. This light affliction, it's just for a moment just for a little moment, and it's working something in you. It's working this weight of glory in you. Have you ever been around someone who has had to suffer for the sake of Jesus and they've come out on the other side of it? Those are the people I like to be around because there is a life and a power and a reality of the presence of God that I don't find in just anyone and everyone. I remember reading a book by Miroslav Wolf, and Miroslav Wolf is the brother-in-law of Peter Kuzmik. And in his book, Exclusion and Embrace, he said that going through the various wars that he went through in Eastern Europe, that they endured great loss. And the way that he was able to endure that great suffering was that the Lord reminded him that nothing is forever lost to the one who believes in a God who resurrects. Nothing is forever lost to the man or the woman who believes in a God who resurrects. Church, we have spent far too much energy, far too much time trying to get those things back that have been lost when what we need to do is press on, believing that in due time, if they are of the Lord, then God will resurrect them. And if they are not, we want nothing to do with them. Paul says, I want to know him, the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings, and I want to be conformed into his image. 
I want to be like him, even unto his death. I want to know him so well, and I want to be so much like him that I will do whatever the Father asks me to do, even if it means the relinquishment of my own life. I want to be like him. And the reason I want to be like him, the reason I want to know him, the reason for all of this, I want to apprehend. I love this. Paul says, I, I haven't done all this yet. I'm not there yet. I am headed in that direction. Are you there with him? I'm not there yet, but I, I am headed in that direction. Paul says, I want to apprehend that which has apprehended me. I want to intimately know, lay hold mentally of that which has laid hold of me and will not let me go. Paul says, something's got a hold of me. I've seen something. I've touched something. I know him and I have been apprehended by something that's bigger than me. I've been apprehended by something that's bigger than all the philosophy that Gamaliel ever taught me. I've been touched by something that's greater than Abraham. I've been touched by something that's more significant than the law. I've been touched by something that didn't just change my mind. I've been touched by something that's transformed the very core of who I am. And something's laid hold of me. I can't figure it all out. I know it's Jesus. But something's got a hold of me and it won't let me go. And it is the goal of my life to lay hold of it. It's like the little boy chasing a dinosaur. I'm going to get that dinosaur. I had a little dog named Hosanna, and Hosanna thought she was a giant dog. Little dog weighed about 35 pounds, but she thought she was as big as Godzilla. I've seen that dog go after German shepherds that weighed over 100 pounds. And I'm like, if she lays hold of that thing, she may, she may be sorry. But Paul's after something that's bigger than him, and he's saying, it's going to cost me my life, but that's fine. I'm going after it because I've seen something, I've touched something. Do any of you, when I say these words, does something turn inside of you? Are you reminded back to a time when God was so alive and so real to you that all you could think about was the next time you could worship him, the next time you could be with a community of believers and pray, that you were so excited to get to church that you showed up early and prayer was something that you wanted to do and not something that you were obligated to do. It's laying hold of what's been laying hold of you apprehending what's apprehended you, going after what's been going after you. Can you imagine God chasing you and you chasing him? That's a wonderful collision looking for a place to happen. And when that collision takes place, it has to be marvelous because I'm, I'm like Paul. I see it. I want it, but I'm not there yet. So I want to lay hold of that which is laid hold of me. I'm not there yet. But in order to do that, I've got to forget what lies behind me. That's the good and the bad. Some of us, we don't want to forget what's behind us because let me tell you what's behind us. For some of you, people have hurt you and you're not going to forget about it. You've been wounded. You've been mistreated. You've been abused, and I don't want to negate anyone's pain, but for the sake of Jesus and for the sake of your well-being, let it go. Because you cannot run forward after Jesus full steam carrying baggage like that behind you. And we've all got some back there somewhere because I'm not saying all mine's gone. But I am saying I am aware that when God shows it to me, I want to let it go. Forget what lies behind you. Forget your dreams. 
Forget your youthful aspirations. Forget what you thought it was going to look like. Forget what you were trying to define and the opinions that you had and go after Jesus. I would rather deny the dreams of my own heart and pursue the dreams of his heart because they're a lot better. Do you know what the difference between your dreams and God's dreams are? It's really this simple. Your dreams are as big as you are. Your dreams are completely dependent on your ability to, and your natural talent and your resources to make happen. If the dreams that you have, you can accomplish all by yourself, then they are your dreams. But if you've got dreams that are so big that there is no way that you can do them, there's no way that you have enough resources, there's no way that you have enough natural ability, that dream comes from God. Because God wants to take you out and away from your own abilities and your own resources and show you a vision of him and give you a dream for his kingdom that's so big that only he can make it happen. We have been dreaming far too small because we've been dreaming according to our abilities and resources. And I believe that God wants to take those barriers and those walls away and for us to dream as big as he is. Because he is a great, big, awesome God to let him give us the dreams of his heart. So the power of his resurrection, fellowship of his suffering, being conformed to his death, forgetting what lies behind, that means the good and the bad, and reach for what is before him. This is, this is um, sports language. It's like a runner that refuses to be distracted by anything around him or her, having only the goal in their sight. Do you guys remember the Boston Marathon when the bomb went off? And there were runners that were so in the zone, they didn't even see or hear the bomb go off. And they were almost right next to it. They had the goal in front of them. And they were running toward that goal. God wants us so focused. Not that we are not caring and compassionate for the people around us, but that we are so focused on that prize that is set before us, which is Christ Jesus, that we're not going to get distracted by somebody with an attitude that we're not going to get distracted by someone who doesn't want to give us rightful visitation to our children, that we're not going to be distracted because somebody's not treating us right. All of those things are nothing. Look in the book of Philippians, what Paul calls suffering. It's not the way the jailers are treating him. It's not even the fact that he is in jail. For Paul, it's all about Jesus and sharing the gospel. He even says, like I, like I shared with you last week, I am in prison, but don't worry about it. It's only acting to further the gospel because that's all that mattered to him. Church, imagine how powerful, how power-filled we would be if we would stop being distracted by all the little brush fires that pop up around us every day that we would let go of the things that are behind us and we would press forward, that we would get the goal in front of us and press forward. I end with this. Back before even the first century was over, a group of men decided that church had become too institutionalized. This is before 300 AD. So the whole concept of institutionalized political church is as old as the church itself. And they decided that things were getting too political and, and too institutionalized. And so they separated themselves out into the desert and they become, became known as the Desert Fathers. And various people would come out to the desert in order to join the Desert Fathers. It was kind of the first monastic order in a way. So this one young man came out to the desert and he wanted to become a part of the Desert Fathers. For three days, he was pretty much ignored. And after three days of being ignored, he decided that this was not the life for him and he was about to leave. 
And as he's packing up his bags, being very disappointed that things did not turn out the way he thought that he wanted them to, he noticed a dog chasing a rabbit. And when that dog started chasing the rabbit, he started barking furiously. And then every dog in the area began to join him in the pursuit of that rabbit. But one by one, every dog dropped out of the hunt except for the one that had originally started chasing the rabbit, and he comes home with a rabbit. And as he you know, is contemplating all this, one of the desert fathers comes up to him and says, Son, do you know what you just saw? And he repeated back the facts. I saw a dog chase a rabbit. I saw him get all the other dogs stirred up, but I saw only this one dog come back with a rabbit. And he said, Do you know why that dog came back with the, with the rabbit and the others didn't? And he said, I don't know. He's faster and the desert father said, no, he came back with a rabbit because he was the only one who had seen it. And the moral of that story is this. You can begin your pursuit of Jesus. Others may join you and then one by one drop out of that pursuit. Because unless they have a vision of Jesus for themselves, unless they see that prize themselves, unless it becomes their prize, their goal, they're not going to stay in the race. And so the goal isn't to get someone excited over what excites me. The goal is to give them Jesus. The goal is to help them see Jesus. The goal is to get them enamored with the Son of God, to get them involved in the Word of God. That's what Paul's saying. I leave all this behind and I press forward that I might obtain the prize of the high calling of Jesus Christ. And then he goes on to say, let this same attitude be in you. Think like this. Let this opinion be in you that whatever you're losing, whatever's going on, it's worthless in comparison to what you gain in Christ Jesus. That is a biblical position regarding suffering. It's a light affliction. It lasts for a moment and get your eyes on Jesus. Because I think if we had our eyes on Jesus, we would stop whining about things. I think if we had our eyes on Jesus, that these light afflictions that pop up on a daily basis would no longer be major distractors in our life. It's time. It's past time. For us to act like mature men and women of God and to set our eyes on the prize and say, oh, I've been apprehended by something. I can't fully describe it nor define it. I know it's Jesus. I know this. I won't be satisfied until I can lay hold of that which is laid hold of me. I want it. I want him. Would you stand with me? Lord Jesus. You know where each of us are. You know the things that we need to count as rubbish. You know the things that we need to leave behind. You know those light afflictions that we need to begin to not allow to distract us any longer. But Father, I know that the solution is you. If we can see you, if you'll allow us to get a glimpse of your glory, if you will allow us, Lord God, to see the prize of Christ Jesus. So we say tonight with Paul, and we speak as fools because we do not understand fully what we are saying. We've been apprehended by something. 
And it's turned our lives around. And now we want to lay hold of that which has laid hold of us. So Spirit of the living God, empower us. Empower us to know him and the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his suffering, and to be conformed to his image. For it's in the name of Jesus that we ask. Amen.